Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Just into the second day of my trip to Madrid. I started yesterday in Inverness. For this episode of Local Zero, Becky Fraser and I are looking at the environmental impact of flying, but we thought it would be good to get the ball rolling this time with an alternative perspective. It didn't all go smoothly. There were a few delays on the Eurostar, but made it to Paris last night and then set off this morning and I'm now currently blasting through the south of France and it's such an incredible way to travel. Andy Emery got in touch on Twitter to say he was doing this epic train journey all the way from Scotland to Spain. He was taking the train instead of the plane. So we got him to record as a few reflections en route. Call this a prologue to set the mood for this episode. Lovely, sort of arid landscapes, lots of solar panels, lots of vineyards. The main reason I don't fly is because of emissions. And the other reason is that it's always good fun to see places on the ground, to travel a bit slower, investigate different landscapes. Um, On the way back, I've got a few stops in cities that I've never even heard of, let alone visited. So that's pretty exciting too. So it's 9pm, I've just arrived in Madrid. Now it's about a 15 minute walk to get to my accommodation for the night. And then I can go to the conference tomorrow feeling refreshed and not cramped after having spent time in a plane and stressed after having spent time in an airport. Huge thanks to Andy, absolutely loved hearing that. Now, on with the show proper. It seems that we've got our priorities wrong and when we have limited renewable energy, should we really be putting it towards flying? Probably not. We are on the same earth, but it feels like we are on parallel universes because there's one place which is experiencing hunger and poverty and there's another place where we're trying to make a choice between going to holiday or not. Hello and welcome to Local Zero, your go-to podcast about what each of us can do to take local action against climate change. It's been a lovely couple of weeks for the pod. We've had lots of kind words about the last couple of episodes, which has been really great. So thanks to everybody who got in touch. Yeah, it's lovely to hear from people. And actually one review that we really liked was from the very appropriately named Rainbow Bikes on Apple Podcasts, who said that they look forward to this podcast and that it's really important in keeping me up to date with the latest developments. It definitely helps shape my thinking about the important stuff. So it's nice to know that we're doing something right, (laughs) A-Team. Quite right. And back with us this week is Fraser Stewart, whose username on Apple Podcasts is hopefully not Rainbow Bikes. Right, Fraser? Uh, no, no, you'll you'll know mine. I go by uh, the renewable Malcolm Tucker. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's, um, 
as ever, it's lovely to be back. Good stuff. So this week, we'll be looking at the importance of reducing flight emissions when it comes to tackling the climate emergency and how important cutting our emissions from flying is relative to cuts in other sectors. Absolutely. And we'll be joined by Anna Hughes to help guide us through this very challenging but important discussion. Anna's the director of Flight to Free UK, a charity whose mission is to inform people of the climate impact of aviation and inspire them to travel by other means. We're also joined by Abelasha Fulonten. Asha is a research associate at Tyndall Manchester and is currently working on a UKIRC, that's the UK Energy Research Centre, project exploring the barriers and opportunities of sustainable fuels in the freight and aviation sectors. Oh, this is a big topic for us, team. <laughs> yeah, you don't get bigger, Becky. Yeah, yeah it's, it's huge. And we wanted to do it because we're ramping up into the summer holidays, okay? So if people haven't already booked their flights, they are, or some people are, searching for the holiday of their mm-hmm. dreams. Now, that's, that's fair enough. We've had a rough couple of years with COVID. For some people, this will be the first opportunity to get a bit of summer sun. Maybe it's to see friends and family they haven't seen in ages. But that doesn't change the facts that we're in a climate emergency. No, no, not at all. And I mean, I think this is a really, really relevantly timed conversation, as you say, not just the summer holidays, but over the past two years, a lot of folk just haven't been traveling. Mm -hmm. Like I know I haven't, Mm. and I I wasn't really traveling that much before then with my young, young kids, but since things have opened up, well, you'll, you'll remember a couple of, couple of episodes ago, I was reflecting on my flight to the U S so. Yeah. You sneaked off. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't take us along. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I feel if I took you all, the carbon emissions would have been way too high. So, (laughs) but I went on my summer holidays. It was, it was booked for me. I went to um, Crete recently. Nope. I didn't go to Crete. I went to Corfu. Let's get that correct. (laughs) 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 And it begins with a C. It does. (laughs) shocking to get it wrong uh but I find it a very challenging one because it's just part of a lot of our lifestyle right it's Mm -hmm. just part and parcel of the things that we do and that we expect to do and and if not us because we're not just making decisions on our own right so like I might decide for my family that we don't want to fly but then when I'm traveling with other people or there's other dimensions involved, like sometimes you just, it yeah. feels like you don't really have a choice. Yeah. yeah, I still feel very guilty about it. At that time as well, Becky, we, we spoke a little bit. Um, Ailey and I were on a, a sort of a little honeymoon. We went to, to Lanzarote. The reason that we decided to do that, we were originally planning on, you know, jumping a train, hopping down to France, traveling a little bit. But work had gotten so hectic for the past few months that we thought we really just want to, to be able to relax. Mm. And now, of course, thinking about it in the context of climate and stuff, that's, extremely selfish but also it's it's not just me in the relationship it wasn't just my holiday so completely understand what you're saying that you're kind of you're trying to strike a strike a balance here as far as possible i'm feeling a bit left out guys because it sounds like i'm the only person who hasn't seen like or felt the hot sun for quite a while (laughs) i I, I haven't flown since late 2019 um but i think next year i am going to for some holiday for my, my my dad's 70th not something i'd have probably plumped for i'd have tried to have kept that flight free thing going but what i'd like the boomerang back round to is you know you guys are we're doing the kind of confessional stuff here you know i have flown <laughs> which is good you know we need to say this yeah. stuff and we need to talk about it but you've also been making big inroads at trying to do you know do travel to travel across britain without using the plane now yes. fraser you've been on the train becky recently you've been on in your ev so yep. tell me was it? Was it pain free? Oh dear! Um, I feel like we could get onto a right a right rant here. So, so I recently went down to Cornwall for a long weekend away with my husband to celebrate our eight year wedding anniversary. And uh, and, we, and he's from Cornwall. Thank you, thank you. Uh, he's from Cornwall, so you know it was that was why we wanted to go there. There was a whole lot of reasons as to why we wanted to go there. I mean, I know it is the other side of the country, and. At one point we looked at, we looked at flights because there is a flight from Glasgow to Newquay. There's a flight from Edinburgh to, you know, like I could have flown. It actually was incredibly expensive to do it that way because we needed a car when we get down there. The public transportation in Cornwall is not fantastic. And so we decided to drive and we talked about hiring another car and we decided that we would take our EV. And my husband did so much research, like plotting out all of the different charge point stations that we could stop at. So it's not helped by the fact that there are so many different companies 
that have charge points. Uh, but there is an app called PlugShare, which helps because it kind of plots them all out. But it, but you have to like click on each one that you see to look at the details mm. of the station. So he'd spent hours plotting the route of where we were going to stop and charge. And we thought we had this like great plan. And, uh, and we decided to drive down through the night and it should have taken us nine hours driving through the night. It took us over 13. And that was because of all the challenges we had when we stopped to charge. That's with young kids as well, Becky. That's an mm. No, 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 no. Oh, it yes, wasn't. The kids. It was, right. <laughs> oh, fair <laughs> enough. Oh, well, it doesn't matter then. <laughs> Can't celebrate your anniversary. I don't feel any sympathy at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was savage. The kids were unwell and we just kind of parceled them off to, the, to my husband's front pouch. And I left them there. It was awful. But no, we, um, we really needed the time away. But I will say this, though. All of the charges worked. Driving around Scotland, because we've done a lot of trips around Scotland, over to Edinburgh, over to the to the coast on that side, um, up into the Highlands. I would say two out of every three times of stopping at a public charging station in Scotland, it's not worked. Mm-hmm. And it might not have it might have been that the station was broken. It might have been that it just didn't work for me because I couldn't get my app to work or my card to work. But I've had so many problems that like I can't even trust. When I stop at a Scottish charging station, like I can't trust that it's going to work. So that, yeah. so I will say this, we didn't have those issues. So that was great. Fraser, you went a completely different mode of transport to avoid flying. You took the train. Any better? Yeah, I think so. So I, I regularly or semi-regularly travelled down from Glasgow or from Edinburgh to Exeter for, for work. That's where Regen is based. So I travelled down every few months to, to spend time with everyone. And there is a direct cross-country train that, to be honest, like you're sitting in one place for seven, eight hours or so. It's, I mean, it's not the most comfortable, but it's relatively painless. It's efficient. The trains come on time. However, at the time of recording, obviously, we are about to run into a week's worth of train strikes. Yeah. And at the time of recording, I'm due to to go down to Glastonbury. To, to speak oh, as part gosh. of the Greenfields speaker yes. corner thing. So if getting to Glastonbury isn't a pain enough to try and get down south from Glasgow to then get to Glastonbury before you even get into, mm. we don't talk about what happens when you get through the gate at Glastonbury, but to get there is nothing short of, of a total a total nightmare. It, it's, it's very remote. It's not only that, it's, it's a long journey. The, you then have potential disruption, which I accept isn't all the time, but it's also still more expensive than if I was to just, you yeah. know, fly to London or Bristol and, yeah. and jump on a bus yeah. from, it's, from it's, there. It's a big problem for sure. And, and yeah, we shall s- remains to be seen whether the strike goes ahead. But obviously, people are having to reach out for other tr- modes of transport. Now, quiz question. I haven't had some of these from me for a little while. I want to ask you both, what do you think is the average share of international and domestic flights for each of our carbon budgets, uh, sorry, carbon footprint. So if, if you took our entire annual carbon footprint, what slice of that pie would be given over to international and domestic flights? UKs. This is the, these are emissions from UK households, so not total UK emissions. Okay. These are household-related emissions. Right. This is difficult as well, right, because there's a huge amount of households that don't fly at all. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why it is, and we got, we'll come on to that, Fraser. You jump in the gun. <laughs> well, uh, you jump in the gun. I presume you're like, we're not going to be reflecting just on like the past year and a half where COVID's probably made that a very right. low proportion. Right. So this so, is, what, yes. what's the time frame? This like? is 2019. Okay, so okay. pandemic. Very pre, good. I, I'd like to say I, I planted that red herring on purpose, but I didn't. Oh, so thank you for Matt, that. these parameters are horrendous. I don't think we've put enough thought into this. Come on, we're on, we're on, we're on, we're on countdown here. Who's going okay, okay. I know, right? So... Uh, For I would average across UK households, I'll take a swing at fifteen percent. Fifteen. Bear in mind that a lot of how a lot of households don't fly. I'm keeping a poker face, Fraser. Okay, Becky. Oh, I wouldn't have said it was that high. I would have gone lower because. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because this isn't including surface transport. It's not so. It's not including like those you know those regular travels that we do by car. So I probably would have been closer to five percent. 12%, 12%, one, two. Fraser, oh, wow. you take you take the gold medal there. Close. But yeah, but it's it's actually mm-hmm. high. And then as Fraser says, you know, it's it's shocking, you know, when you think that's on average. So um we have this fantastic paper that basically identifies that half of aviation emissions are from just one percent. This is globally. 
Okay. Uh, and so that, you know, that really talks. So that's, you know, so more than 90% of people have never flown globally and just 1% of the world's population is responsible for 50% of emissions from flying. Doesn't this speak to, this speak to what came up in the, the last episode as well? Um, about the the idea that people who think you know like wealthier lifestyles or you never consider yourself as being within the one percent no in any scenario when we're talking about behaviors and lifestyle. well we're in the in the ten percent there you know we've we've flown yeah yeah this is globally so and I just wanted to come to the fact so there's obviously you know there's a real kind of this really ramps up so there's some people who are flying once a year maybe once every few years once a year some people flying a few times a year but then there are there are the naught point naught 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 one percent that's not actually a statistic, that's me just being um, silly, uh, of, of folk who are using kind of private aircraft jets. So these are the Ed Sheerans of the world who are looking to kind of offset doing other stuff, right? Mm. Same paper from Gosling and Humper, uh, which we can put a link to on the website. My carbon footprint, according to the WWF calculator last year, was about 9.2 tonnes of CO2. Contextualise that for us, Matt. That means nothing to me. So whilst the average footprint internationally would be much, much lower... According to Pawprint, which is a, a tool a website for you to be able to uh, outline and calculate your carbon footprint, they estimate that the UK average carbon footprint is 12.7 tonnes of CO2. So I'm below average, but not not you know massively. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to use private aircraft, <laughs> right, seven and a half thousand tonnes of CO2 wow. for those individual oh users, wow. seven and a half thousand tonnes. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that, that is mm-hmm. you know, a thousand times more than, yeah. than, than mine. Just gives you a sense, the yeah. jet set. I think this is, this is an interesting question as well mm-hmm. in that we're having this discussion about how do we go flight free and how do we reduce, and that's important and we have to, but I think there's a, a bigger discussion here as well about how do you hold those people accountable mm. yeah. Um, yeah. to make sure that you're having that impact too. So, you know, looking in on yourself and what can you change, what can we do differently, but also how do we make it so that there's a, a fair distribution of the, the burden and responsibility for this? What folk can't see and that I'm looking at very, very, with a big smile on my face is, basically we've got all of Matt's notes, all of Matt's show notes are back in our documents, including some really, really beautiful graphs. And I know you didn't make those graphs yourself, Matt, and uh, <laughs> can't, I can't actually tell from your notes, well, but pa- you brought them Patrick, from. <laughs> one of the production team has been a big help on this. So, you know, he's, we've pulled together some of this, but yet yeah, in there, you can compare, can't you? Yeah, the, and so so mm. I'm actually looking at a, a, a chart that says personal choices to reduce your contribution to climate change. And it's actually a really, really nice chart in here. And I know like we talk a lot about, you know, switching to an EV. And after, I've talked about a lot about that before. And we talked about eating a plant-based diet. <laughs> actually, I remember you did a quiz for us a while back, Matt, on this. Yeah. And I said, I said, what are the top things you can do? And I said, not have children. And actually having one fewer child oh, yeah. is top Big of the list. Yeah. So. You because know, they're twins. doing all this stuff. <laughs> they're, they're the ones flying and eating meat. They're, you know, it's the human production thing that's the problem. But yeah, that's that's from a paper from Lund University. So that's that's the big Great. one. But but, but third on the list, and I mean like, okay, so having one few, fewer child, like big lifestyle decision, obviously one of the biggest impactful things you can do. The next one is living car free. And I would say actually for a lot of us, living car free is not entirely attainable. Next one down is avoid one round trip transatlantic flight and that has a huge implication so if you just sort of trade that off against you know like living car free a very very big lifestyle change to just one fewer transatlantic flight i mean not crossing the atlantic huge phenomenal impact that this has but then you can flip it the other way right in that Mm -hmm. many would argue that aviation is one of the hardest sectors to decarbonize just in terms Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm finding an alternative way of putting people in the sky and moving them from A to B, you know, it's, it's technologically very challenging. Um, but I, I completely take your point. If maybe it's just that we don't take the flight in the first place. So that's why we're speaking to flight free UK today. And to get a sense of that, I, I think it's also worth pointing out another figure that we, we, we uh, pulled out before we bring the guests in is just to kind of compare the emissions per kilometer of different types of travel. So, so some of the flight figures here, I should say, in, incorporate the primary effects of flying in terms of climate change. That's the carbon emissions. But there's other stuff um, in terms of the, the, soot, the, the, the nitrous oxide, the secondary effects of, mm-hmm. of flying, which kind of supercharges the, the impact this has on the climate. And mm-hmm. domestic flying 
is by far and a worse. It's about 250 grams of CO2 per passenger per kilometer. If you take a, a car with four passengers in it, that drops to about 43. So it's about a fifth of the domestic flight. And Fraser, you're like this domestic rail, which you take. So um, Becky, you'd have your car, I don't know, the EV is probably lower than 43 because I'm assuming this is internal combustion. Fraser, domestic rail, 40. So 40 grams versus 250 grams. And that just gives you a sense. It's, it's a fraction. It's 20% maybe of, of what it could be. So you're making the right call, but it isn't without its wrinkles. Yeah, of course. And this this is the question, right? That I, th- I think the question is where where there's the will to make the change, how do we facilitate it in the in the best possible way? I think we're all on all on that page. I have to be honest, right? And maybe it's maybe it's just because I haven't delved into it. I don't do an awful lot of the, you know, the more sort of technical side of a lot of this stuff. I've never gone into aviation before, but I was quite taken aback with how stark, like how that you you could have a bigger impact by dropping that one big flight over going, yeah. you know, meat free for a year. That is it's a big hitter. I didn't realize it was so so big. Yeah, and it goes back to Becky's point. These are single decisions. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know they have ramifications beyond that. It might be you're not seeing family in America. Okay, that that might be, or they're not coming to see you. But it's single decision point, whereas not dropping the kids off at school every day by car, you know, or completely changing your diet. These are important things too. I'm not belittling them, but they're decisions that are made multiple times every day. Yeah. So listen, we, we could talk about this, but whilst we're engaged and interested, we're not the experts (laughs) on this per se. So we should bring the guests in, I think. That's it. Bring them in. Abhilasha Fulantin, um, and I work as a research associate at the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research at the University of Manchester. Um, I used to work in industry as a consultant um, in carbon markets, and a lot of the work that I did before was partly on transport, partly on other sectors, and now that I've made it to the transition to academia, my focus is on alternative fuels for the shipping and aviation sector. So my research looks at green ammonia as a potential aviation fuel, but also within that looking at um, what barriers and opportunities lie in setting up a brand new fuel supply chain, which is much needed for transport decarbonisation. Hi, I'm Anna Hughes. I'm the director of Flight Free UK. It's a behaviour change charity. We encourage people to choose to fly less. We There are two kind of pillars to our work, informing people of the climate impact of aviation and inspiring them to travel by other means. So I set the charity up a couple of years ago and before that I was working in behaviour change with SUSTRANS, mainly focused on uh, overland transport and uh, road transport. So encouraging people to drive less and to be aware of the environmental impact of their travel. So that's kind of translated now into focusing on aviation. So welcome, Asher and Anna, to Local Zero. It's absolutely fantastic to have you aboard. No pun intended, given that this is all about flying, um, and many of us will be gearing up to go on our holidays. And for many, that means getting on a flight. So can we explain to our listeners how bad is flying for the climate? And is this getting better or worse? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two different ways that I can sort of put you know, or answer that question really. One is setting up a case for how bad aviation is on a global level and then how bad it is at an individual level. At a global level, aviation is making up upwards of 2%, 2 to 2.5% of global aviation emissions, which doesn't sound like a lot when you say it, but individually, it's one of the most carbon intensive things an individual can do in their lifetime. So if people are concerned about their carbon footprint and what they're doing, what they should do, what they shouldn't do, they should consider that flying is probably one of the things that they are doing that adds on to their carbon footprint the most. Of course, in the UK and EU, we are we are out of in a very unique region. I want to say that because it's not the same everywhere, because there are alternative modes of transport within the UK and EU that can be tapped into that people don't. So there is a choice, which is a privilege, really, because that's not available everywhere around the world. Quite right, and I just going back onto the the two percent or two and a half percent. I read that there's 
actually that could be a lot higher if we account for the radiative forcing of different aspects of aviation. So actually there's the emissions, the carbon emissions, but the other stuff that aviation can can generate, whether it's um, nitrous oxide, whether we've got particulate matter, actually that could be almost double that in kind of real world effects. Is that, am I, am I right? Yeah, you're right. Yes. So we divided, the way that we look at it is we divide it into two different bits. One is the CO2 impacts, which is what is talked about really, in, mm. you know, uh, mostly, but that there are also non-CO2 impacts of aviation. The reason that we don't really talk about it as much is because there is undergoing research that's trying to clarify how we can address the non-CO2 impacts of aviation. It's a lot more difficult because when you are combusting fuels at such an altitude, there will be particulate matter, there will be soot, there will be water vapor, there will be cirrus. Um, emissions mm-hmm. that will affect the radiative forcing. So it's particularly difficult to really tamp down on how serious the non-CO2 impacts are, but we it is proven that it's more serious than CO2. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a live debate. And so Anna, I mean, Flight Free UK, a really important initiative to try and encourage people to, to move away from flying. And this must be your bread and butter, right? Knowing exactly how bad flying is for the climate. Um, so from, from your perspective, how bad is it? And, and and what do people not quite understand yet about, about the impacts? Lots of people simply don't realise how huge the climate impact from aviation is. I think our awareness of things, the other things that we do in our lives, such as driving, such as what we choose to eat, how we clothe ourselves, how we generate our energy, those things, we're fairly well informed about that kind of stuff. You know, even if we don't change our behaviour, we're quite aware that Yes, the low meat diets, the vegan diets, they're the ones that have the lowest impact on the planet. If you drive less, if you ride your bike more, that's going to really help lower your carbon footprint. But there seems to be a bit of a blockage when it comes to flights. And I wonder if that's because we don't do it very often. (laughs) So unless you're a super frequent flyer, you might take two or three flights a year and not really think too much about it because, you know, you might be in all other aspects of your life trying to reduce your carbon leave your car leave your car at home a few times a week and these are regular decisions that we make on a daily basis but then when it comes to our handful of flights a year we don't really register them and that was certainly the case for me you know I haven't flown for over 12 years now but when I did fly I didn't everything else in my life was about keeping my carbon footprint as low as possible yeah I just booked a flight because that's how you travel right so we're trying to disrupt that narrative with flight for UK um, partly by informing people about how climate heavy their flights really are but also by showing the alternatives and you know inspiring that other modes of transport I think one of the more helpful ways to illustrate this is to compare it to the other things that we do so for example a return flight to the west coast of the US per passenger will generate more carbon than the typical average driver would generate in a year's worth of driving I mean that's immense Similarly, if you are trying to cut down on your meat intake and you go vegan for a year, you could wipe out those savings with one flight. This is how carbon heavy these choices are. And then if we look at kind of comparing to other transport modes, for example, if I choose to travel to Barcelona, let's say by air, and uh, compared to a train journey to Barcelona, because it's perfectly possible to travel to Barcelona from the UK by train, I would save 90% on the emissions by traveling by train. And those are really significant savings when we're facing climate breakdown. So, you know, that that is the stark reality of how, how carbon-heavy flights really are. I, I, just to put that in context, I was looking at carbon emissions from Glasgow to fly to Mallorca round trip, which is about, I think this is without the radiative forcing, Asher, this is around the 300 kilogram mark. If you bring that in, it's about half a tonne. So 90% of half a tonne is a lot of is a lot of CO2. So I just wanted to kind of put some numbers numbers to that. Yeah, I mean, I, this is a really, I mean, already this is a fascinating conversation and, and quite a few things have come up, but I just want to tap into a little bit because I want to question how we're framing this as a choice. And as you said about how, you know, we, we actually are privileged here. We have alternative options. And Anna, you frame this as like, we have a choice to get on that plane, a choice to make that flight. A part of me agrees and part of me wants to challenge that because sometimes for for work, it might be a choice, but it on the face of it, but ultimately there's not a choice underneath it. You know, if you're, if you're being sent there, if there's something that's kind of embedded in that, 
as an employee, as something as part of your business, it feels like the world is changing. It feels like the past few years and what we've been doing in terms of virtual communications is starting to shift that dynamic. But even with colleagues that I work with around the UK, there's nothing like being in a room together. There's just some stuff that you cannot do virtually. And the fact that we do live in this kind of global society, right? So like on the work front, and then on the personal front, even if you are traveling locally, sometimes economically, it's not a choice. (laughs) Sometimes from a time constraint perspective, it's not a choice. And so, you know, how much of this can we tackle at the individual level versus actually having to think a lot more systemically? So is, is it fair to, to be framing it as a choice? I mean, Asha, what do you think from the work that you've been doing? Um, I agree. I think I was going to make that point about it still being not economically viable for a, a lot of people. But I think there, it's also important to remember that while we also perceive it, when consumers make a choice when it comes to money, they will always choose the thing that's cheaper and that's faster, right? That is just a very logical way that we think. But when we're talking about that group of people who can travel or can afford to travel, it's a very small group of people, even by train, right? So when we're talking about leisure travel, we're that's also very, that's a small handful of people that do the frequent flying and the travel and go on holiday and there are added expenses. So when I when I say it's a choice, it's truly a choice because you're financially differentiating yourself from a, the larger group of people who cannot afford to go on holidays because traveling is just one part of the cost that you're spending. You have to go there and you have to stay in a hotel and there's expenses and things like that. So there's a large part of the population that don't actually get to experience it. So when we are talking about that group of people that can make the choice to travel or to take a train, they're fairly financially well off enough to make that decision in itself, right? It's inherently privileged, right? So you don't get that choice if you are, you know, a low income earner with a family of four. And, you know, so so it's a very specific demographic that I'm talking about. No, that's really, really useful. And and Anna, I've been having like um, a browse of the the website and you have some real... um, champions I guess in there who are really sort of making making the choice making the pledges and talking about what they've done do you see you know this this kind of really aligning more with a particular group of people over others or are you starting to see this broadening out yeah well our pledge and our campaign is aimed at everyone but as you've identified and as Asha said it's generally the people who have more disposable income who can make this choice and who perhaps are more well-informed there has to be a way that people can access this information as well. So, you know, we're, we're kind of are looking at the, the slightly well-educated and, and interested people, even just to start with. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because everything you said, Becky, there was really very accurate. These choices are not always easy to make and they're not made easier by the system that we're in. So it can't just be about those individual choices. It has to be about the system change. But what we can what we acknowledge and what we try to promote with our campaign is that those two things are linked, right? So uh, one of the reasons, for example, why flights are so comparatively cheap is because there's no tax on aviation fuel. So that's something that we can demand. Another thing that we can demand to make these travel choices easier is better information, more linked up transport. So for example, in France, the way the coaches and the trains are managed is that they do link up. So it's much easier to travel long distance by a variety of different types of transport than it is here in the UK. And we we all know how ridiculous our rail prices are here in the UK and the system of doing it. And it's just not nuts really. So those are things that all need to change. But we can demand those changes with our consumer choices, right? So, I mean, we can look at other consumer movements such as veganism as an example. So uh, 10 years ago, when I started being vegan, my options were a salad if I was lucky. Now I get a menu with choice on it. And that's not because everyone's vegan now. It's because there are enough people doing it and talking about it. And it's now a bit trendy that even Subway offers me a vegan choice, you know. So it's just that that's the kind of social tipping point that we can get to through those individual habits. But if, if, if I can extend Becky's point, right. So there's, there's a question mark around, do we have a choice? Okay, and then the, the next obvious question to me is, well, who should be making a positive choice first? There's various stats I can point out uh, about, you know, the number of people who take 
you know, flights versus those that don't. So uh, 2013, and this is, we're going back a bit, but 2013, 70% of all flights in the UK were taken by only 15% of the population. We know that there are the frequent flyers and there are people who um, do this a lot more. And also, if you kind of go down that curve in terms of the number of flights, it's probably a strong correlation with wealth, right? The wealthier you are, the more you can fly. And we'll get to a threshold where people simply cannot afford to fly. So who should be making the positive choice first to reduce or indeed stop flying versus those that are maybe flying once every three or four years? Who Who, who is responsible here, first and foremost? And and. We can't just say everybody, although that might be the answer. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right, Matt. That's a good point. I think just to sort of quickly touch on the system ch- the change, the, the bottom-up change that we were talking about. I was at a conference yesterday, and one of my colleagues, Maria, used a very interesting example. She said, think about gay marriage. A few years ago, you know, gay marriage was illegal in a lot of places. And the way that we have transitioned as a society into accepting something that is new as a concept or foreign to a lot of people, it was a bottom-up response that we collectively called for. I don't know if it can be equated to aviation per se, but I'm saying that there is some strength in this bottom-up response if we can harness it in the right way. I don't think it should be ignored. I think at the same time, there's government interventions and regulations that are very vital when we're talking about something like aviation. But just to go back to who should be making that choice first, I think what COVID has done, and there's a silver lining here, is that it's changed the way we perceive travel permanently, I would argue. Now with business travel, we know that there are alternatives, there are viable alternatives. And I understand that, of course, there is something else about being at a conference in person and meeting your colleagues and things like that. But I think it's completely shifted the way that we do business travel. And a lot of the arguments that the UK government actually puts forward for airport expansions and revenues and you know wider economic impacts is through business travel. And realistically, when we are looking at the future, a lot of it is going to come as a result of leisure travel, not business travel. It's really changed the scope in which we conduct business in the first place. We used to think that we couldn't do conferences online. We've done it, and we've done it for two years. Who's to say that if we don't demand? I mean, even as a university in the University of Manchester, we have to rethink the way that we do business because we have our own internal CO2 goals. And I would wholeheartedly agree. I think business is possibly a way of doing this, but I'm going to hand over it to Anna just a moment. But I just wanted to, to say in terms of COVID that we, I had a quick look at the uh, flight stats uh, from the European Flight Network. And it's interesting to see how this is rebounded now, that we're running at about 15% lower than pre-pandemic levels. And you'd expect summer to see it rebound. So in terms of that COVID, I do wonder whether things have changed changed for the long term. Anna, yeah. did you want anything to add anything there about you know who is most responsible and who should who should take responsibility? Yeah, so it's a really good question, and of course, as you've illustrated, there are certain people who take more flights than others, um, and then and of course, it needs to be you know the the most impact would come from those people reducing the amount they fly. So just to add a little bit to your statistic, so the 70% of flights which are taken by 15% of the people, that classifies you as a frequent flyer. In fact, in order to be part of that uh, 15%, you only need to take three return flights a year. Now, I reckon I know lots of people in my friendship circle would take three return flights a year, but they wouldn't class themselves as a frequent flyer, mainly because everybody knows someone who flies more than they do. Right. So that's where... Which is different from the most frequent flyer, right? So that's, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And th- so the targeting aspect of this is quite problematic when you leave it down to individuals because, yeah, no one's going to look at themselves and say, oh, yeah, I'm that frequent flyer that needs to reduce the amount of flight. It, that's where the regulation has to come in. Like, why are we rewarding people for taking many <laughs> flights a year? You know, we've still got these reward programs in place that's an obvious one to go first right right we um, don't have that for and, the train we don't the, have a reward program for <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah that's what we need but I mean last week I was just talking to a colleague who had just booked a flight because his voucher was about to run out yeah. 
like he didn't need to go on the flight and i was like oh this is the madness of this of the society that we're in you know this is the this is the thing though anna right it's it kind of sorry but like speaking to um accountability on this who's likely to, to hold themselves to task and it speaks to what asha had mentioned about the bottom-up approach as well is there a limit to what we can do as consumers before we have to start thinking about citizens, about making demands, about pointing the finger up the way for, for that accountability. Yeah, oh, for sure. And everybody responds differently, right? So there will be a sector, a quite sizable sector of society who will change their behaviour as a result of being presented with information that then influences their, their choices, like having the emissions comparison on a plane ticket before you buy it, for example. Um, but there were there are also a sizable section which won't who won't be influenced by that at all. So that's where the regulation needs to come in. So it has to be both those sides. And I mean, I just also want to come back on this and think about the um, the example, the comparison that you made, Asha, towards like the, you know the legalization of gay marriage. And and I was sort of just stewing on that whilst we were talking. And I was thinking, you know, like a lot of people were for that either because it aligned with you know, their fundamental values about rights. But also there was no detrimental impact to them of that change being made. And this is where, for me at least, as and I have gone through a period of my life where I've certainly been a frequent flyer. I lived in New Zealand for a number of years and there are very, I mean, in, internally in the country, I mean, that's how people get around. It's just very, very far to drive. There's no good train lines. There's not the population you know and so I, I flew a lot and I would say that I haven't over the past five six years and that's partly because I had a family and then partly because of COVID but now that we're opening up again and I'm starting to travel again partly to visit family in other parts of the UK partly to take holidays partly for work I'm looking at my options and it isn't it's not just about cost and time for me it's also about like what that better option is. And, you know, the, if I could, if I could work on the train, like I don't mind if a train journey is longer, but I can't work on it. So it, it's wasted time, you know? And so I feel like there's an element in here where how are we going to get this groundswell, you know, even if people fundamentally believe and want to do their bit to reduce emissions, how are we going to get a groundswell around it when actually the upshot is, is that it's going to negatively impact on other parts of their life. Like, how can we, how can we flip this so that not flying is the better option? Right. I think, I think it's also important to point out that there is a physiological dissonance when people fly. They really don't think about their impact, like Anna pointed out. When you're taking a flight, you're not really thinking about what your individual impact is going to be, especially if you're doing it for two hours. Let's talk about the UK Euro flights. They're cheap. People take it frequently. They're going to be taking frequently over summer. It has grave impacts for not just people in other parts of the world, but also our own future. So when, as an economist, when I think about it, and I will do like a quick cost-benefit analysis of an individual's life, we're going to end up paying more for everything if we continue to do it. So I think the way that we should frame it is what individual A impact or what they're going to experience over an entire lifetime if they continue to not change their own behavior. Right. So I think we have to sort of close that gap of understanding where we think that what we do now doesn't really matter because we're not going to see it for the next few years. But in reality, we're already seeing it. I remember before COP26, there was a very Star Guardian article that came out where the environment minister in Madagascar compared or put Europe and UK accountable, the cheap flights from UK to Europe and vice versa, accountable for the climate-induced famine that was happening in Madagascar at the time. And really, it's the first time I've read on paper somebody, an official, really making that connection and saying that cheap flights have caused something that's happening in my country. And because climate financing targets have been missed this year again, um, we are not able to grow food so we are on the same earth but it feels like we are on parallel universes because there's one place which is experiencing hunger and poverty and there's another place where we're trying to make a choice between going to holiday or not you know so it's it's a very weird sort of comparison but it's really happening now and so I feel like it was
was all news. And sometimes when we sort of read about these headlines, we kind of forget about it. But I feel like I have to sort of reinstate it every time I, I talk about this issue because, you know, it can't be overlooked. So I want to start to move into what do we do next? Um, how do we tackle this? We've talked a little bit about flying less. We've talked a bit about adopting alternative modes of travel. But if we look at government, UK government, uh, and look to them to, to point the, the way forward and their jet zero strategy, which came hot on the heels of their transport decarbonisation plan, um, other stuff starts to creep in. Their big focus on improving the overall efficiency of our aviation system. That means kind of, you know, efficiency of the planes, but also the efficiency of the kind of logistics and the management of, of those flights. Uh, the acceleration and development and deployment of sustainable aviation fuels and the progression of zero emission flight. So that's sustainable aviation fuels, also zero emissions flight. That's walking into kind of battery territory. Um, and also uh, something we've talked a little bit about in uh, previous pods, particularly the Green Leads episode a couple back, is driving down emissions in the most cost-effective way using markets. And much of this can be carbon credits and offsetting. So both of you, I'm sure, will have a view on this. And I'm going to come to you in a moment because I know Asha has researched this, but I certainly want your view and Flight Free UK's view on this. So um, Asha, I know you've been deep in the research on this, uh, some of those issues. Yeah, I used to, I used to work um, for the California emissions trading system, you know, some of the features or the principal features of the ETS there are similar to what we're experiencing in the UK and in the EU. But yeah, you're right. I mean, market-based mechanisms play a huge role or any projection that you will see for, about aviation emissions and how to get to net zero with aviation has a big chunk of that is because of market-based mechanisms. But there are a lot of inherent issues um, with that regulation as it stands, to be perfectly honest. I think if we take Corsia, for example, or even if we take... You'll have case, to unpack some of these terms for, for, oh, for the course. listeners. So, I mean, uh, the, the emissions trading almost begin, I think, with just a few words about how this works, because we're talking about kind of international market mechanisms here. Right, exactly. So basically, the principle of the market mechanism is to allow emitters to decarbonize in the most cost-effective way possible. That's really the bottom line. When you're looking at it from an industry perspective, you want to allow them to decarbonize in the cheapest way possible. That's really the principle of the ETS, even though it's controversial and there's a lot of different features that you know are troubling as it stands. I think the first very important thing we have to understand is that we have to price the carbon the right way in an appropriate way, if we're going to go ahead with market-based mechanisms. I mean, to be honest, right now, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of other options on the table uh, with the way things are going. So market-based mechanisms, unfortunately, have are playing will play a big role in, in um, going forward. But it has to be an appropriate amount. And what I mean by that is that when an airline operator or when an airplane is polluting, there are social costs that are incurred by society by us, right? There'll be environmental costs, there'll be health costs, and there'll be other damages that will be incurred by us as a society. And to cover that, airline operators should, in principle, pay appropriately for that. What happens right now is that that price of carbon is not actually costed in the right amount. There are research that exists of how much it should be costing. Some say it should be you know, in the $80 to $100 range, some say it should be above. There are ETSs that are in place that are you caught that charge $200 per ton of carbon, which is which is a lot of money. But so so to put to put that into perspective, uh, you know, uh, to fly, I don't know, from UK to New York, I'm guess from what I looked at before, that's that'd be well over a ton. Yeah, uh, return. So you you're adding another $200 on top of that flight, right? Exactly. And so essentially what you're trying to do is is make the polluter pay for the pollution, right? On paper, it feels like a very equitable way of distributing, you know, accountability um, or at least financial mm. accountability of, of the pollution or emissions that's and, and happening. To, and, and, and to reinvest 
those carbon... Correct, those funds back into the system. So for other decarbonization or even to subsidize SAFs, um, sustainable aviation fuels. Anna, on that point, is you know sustainable aviation fuels um, from a fr- flight-free UK perspective? I mean, I think the answer is maybe in the, in the name of the, the, the initiative, but d- do you see these as playing a role or are they just unhelpful? Uh, I Actually, honestly, I think they're unhelpful. Unsurprisingly, I don't really trust the government to sort this out. Or not even just trust. Like, I don't believe they will. Mainly because I don't believe that they know the seriousness of this. All governments want people to vote for them, right? And it feels like... And they, they have not shied away from this. They have not shied away from the fact that they want to solve everything without asking people to change their behaviour. Even though Climate Change Committee has made recommendations that... Overall, we can use technology as kind of a supplement to reduce emissions, but fundamentally we need to reduce the amount we fly. If we are to reach our net zero targets, we cannot do it without demand demand management. Yet the government continually ignore this because that's going to be, that's not a vote winner. You know, people people do not want to hear that we're going to have to change how we live, but actually to solve the climate crisis, we're going to have to change everything about the way we live. So the shiny jet zero plan is full of these promising sounding things like sustainable aviation fuels. And I'm going to call them alternative fuels because actually they're not really sustainable. There, there are some versions of an alternative fuel which might potentially be zero carbon. And that is likely to be an e-fuel. So electronic fuel um, created using renewable energy. So if we get to that point, and by the way, the technology is, for that is still 10 years away. Once you've developed that technology to get it into commercial aviation, it's going to take another perhaps 10 years. So we're way, way off this actually happening on a practical level commercially. But that that alone, the e-fuels generated with renewable energy is likely to be the only way we can genuinely fly carbon neutral mainly because all other fuels create they still create the amount the same amount of carbon during the combustion phase you know it's it's just as carbon heavy to burn a so-called sustainable aviation fuel created from waste palm oil or the combustion still creates the same amount of pollution it's just the savings and i'm i am saying savings in inverted commas here are from the life the life cycle of that of generating that fuel so like uh, there are claims that sustainable or alternative fuels can be 80% lower emissions than conventional jet fuel. And that's because uh, the projection is that because they're not going to sit in landfill creating methane, then we've saved that methane from going into the atmosphere. Okay, well, it it's quite a difficult calculation to make. Um, but just to come back, just to r- kind of round out this conversation, to come back to the green, the like the genuinely zero carbon fuel, we're in an energy crisis we're already in an energy crisis. We already don't have enough renewable energy to A, decarbonise the grid, B, decarbonise all our land transport. Those are the, I would say, I'm sure most people would agree that those are probably the priority over trying to keep on flying around on holiday. You know, there we are talking about luxury here. So it's it seems that we've got our priorities wrong. And when we have limited renewable energy, should we really be putting it towards flying? Probably not. Probably should be putting it towards the more immediate life things. The thing is, is we could talk about this for hours and we could actually have you back to talk about each of these like individual aspects one at a time. But I do just want to ask about offsetting because every time, you know, that you do go and buy a plane ticket, there's always that little box about, do you want to take an offset? And I never actually know... Well, you know, whether I should take that or not. Ashley, you're shaking your head. Like, can you just give us like a very, very brief, tell me about offsetting, set the story straight for us. Don't pick the offsetting box. (laughs) What should we do instead? What do we do instead? Not fly. Don't fly. (laughs) Um, No, I think think offsetting is a very, very complex um, mechanism. It has gotten a bad rep and for good reason because... It has a lot of wider environmental impacts that are not really appropriately, again, costed. You know, when we can charge one pound for a carbon credit, 
it doesn't really feel seem like a fair price to pay for flying across the country, you know. So it has wider impacts because when you're setting up projects in a another country, mostly that happens in the global south, you are creating an entire an economic ecosystem where, you know, to get there, people have to take cars to operate the wind farm. There are capital expenditures. There'll be emissions to set that up. And if you look at the entire life cycle of an offset project, it doesn't really add up to what, you know, it looks like. It, it sounds like a very sort of easy way to, you know, get away with flying, really. Um, and that's that's a very large part of what's troubling with Corsia is that, you know, you have these big sort of projects that claim to, you know, remove um, one ton of CO2 for one ton of CO2 elsewhere. But, you know, it's not a really a fair system. I would maybe st- steer clear of the of the carbon offsetting schemes, um, especially the you ones. Know, it just makes us feel better, right? Makes us feel it better, but actually, feel, yeah, it's it's a it's a sort of I would even classify it as a classic greenwashing uh, technique. You know, so I would I would maybe steer clear, or even even learn more about. You can contribute to offset projects elsewhere. It doesn't have to be you know what's advertised on the you know. So um, there there are a lot of different types of offset projects too. So each of them have different impacts. Um, and it's very important to sort of read up on those before blindly kind of accepting what's there. It seems then that the the end goal, maybe where we want to be, maybe where we can aspire to be is being able to choose not to fly, not flying, finding alternatives. In the interim, we need to think about those flights, I guess, that we need to take those flights we don't need to take and what we can do to reduce the impact of flying. And it sounds like then, you know, perhaps just ticking the offsetting box is not a good way that we can go about reducing the impact of flying. There may be other options. I mean, but really, we like to always end Local Zero with thinking about how we can, you know, bring that down to our, as individuals, as communities, like what can we do? So I'd love if you could both perhaps just share a few ideas of beyond the kind of all or nothing, like what can we do as individuals to try and reduce the impact, to get us started on that journey, which may end in all of us pledging never to fly again. But how can we get started on that journey? Well, I'm going to start by saying, of course, we would love people to sign our pledge because it doesn't say you can never fly again. It's simply to quit flying for a year. So this is our method of behavior change. If you can challenge yourself to do things differently for that period of time, then when you finish your pledge or finish your pledge year, hopefully those behaviors that you've picked up during that time will continue into your uh, later habits, even if you do then have to get on a flight again, because as you've illustrated, Becky, it's not that simple that we all just say we're not going to fly anymore. Um, We have a very globalized society now. Lots of us have family across oceans and uh, that we have some work commitments that are slightly unavoidable um, in terms of flying but yeah that that's our method of behavior change could you try it for a year so if you want to sign up it is flightfree.co.uk and we would love to have people uh, choose to sign our pledge fantastic thanks anna asha any closing closing ideas from you um it's a tricky one honestly i think when when it comes to aviation i feel like people always view it as as all or nothing but yeah i'm hoping that there's going to be more demand side changes because i think Coming from a more technology side, I can tell you that, you know, we are trying to answer two questions. One is whether it's feasible to have alternative fuels in the scale that we require and the other if it's doable by 2050 because that we have a real deadline in hand. You know, we're not just sort of aiming for 2070 or 2080. It's 30 years away. And so, you know, our impacts now have to be more practical than they were. You've asked, you know, how can people feel like they're making a difference? And we, we spent quite a lot of the podcast just talking about people making those climate friendly choices. And of course, it is down to us as individuals in many ways. That's all we ever have control over. But there are so many other ways that we can put pressure on to change things and to reach that system change that we need. There are lots of groups that fight airport expansion. So that's a key one. That's an easy one. Write to your MP about airport expansion if you live near an airport. Um, Join your local airport expansion group. Uh, Talk about it. Just talk about it with your friends. You know, these are things that we can all do. Our campaign is not the only one that's asking for people to fly less. There are other campaigns across Europe. There are uh, other campaigns that focus on specifically on frequent flyers, all of this stuff. So you you can definitely go beyond your own individual choice. There are lots of people out there working really hard on this. And that's how we achieve societal change. And that's what we really need to see. You're speaking my language there, Anna. I was quietly on mute off the side there. Um, 
shouting and screaming and clapping my hands. I think that's such an important point, the kind of citizens as well as consumers, a really important thing to, to remember there. I think that was, that was a fantastic chat. And Becky, you're right, we could have done that for, for a long, long time. Matt and Becky, do you have any final remarks, any final takeaways after that chat? Do you feel motivated to change how you, how you live and travel? More motivated and a bit clearer, which is good. Yeah, I will be visiting Flight Free UK. I will be trying yeah. to make the pledge. No, no more trips to LA for you, Becky, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Gosh, I hate, I mean, I hated the travel, but yeah, I still come back to this, the fact that it's, it is hard and it's not something that's going to uh, to change overnight. And I, I do think that, that that the option to to kind of ramp it up, to realise that it doesn't have to be a switch for all of us and that it is this kind of gradual um, evolution. You know, I'm like completely vegan now, but I didn't do that overnight. So I think that this is possibly something that's going to end up going in the same direction. And to cost the carbon, Asher was saying that, cost the carbon. Mm -hmm. If you doubled the the cost of the flight and halved the cost of of the train and also made the train nice, right? That's, you know, or nicer. Doesn't even have to be that nice. But um, I hope to I hope to live to see that day. Yeah, yeah. I think a big a, a big point as well. Something that I think resonated that that Asha raised really really perfectly was that it's actually we we think about it as oh, do we have the luxury of can, can could we could we not do this? Is it convenient? Is it is it economically effective? But actually, I think Asha said it out really really well. It's actually critical to sort of global climate justice as well, right? When you put it into the the bigger perspective, the bigger the bigger picture. We're, we're dealing with ourselves, but we're also dealing with something something much bigger too. Great. On that note then, Asha and Anna, thank you so much for coming along. That was an excellent discussion and we, we hope we can get you back up again to draw it out some more. Thank you. So, Thanks for having thank me. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks. So you have been listening to Local Zero. Thanks to our guests and everyone we've heard from about previous episodes. We've please keep the feedback coming in. Tell us what you've enjoyed, what you'd like to hear from in the future. So if you haven't already, go and find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. And if you can't concentrate your thoughts and feelings to just a few characters, you can always email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. So if you're enjoying Local Zero, please, 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 please do leave a review. This helps us climb up the charts and drive the local energy revolution. And until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.